Hey, those of you at home, good morning. <laughs> I know you didn't hear me. Uh, well, welcome on this uh, very icy, icy day. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure we have a few more people watching at home this week because of that. Um, so, uh, but I'm glad, glad you're all here. I'm glad those of you who are participating at home or on demand are, are there as well. We're in our fifth week of our series on Romans 12 through 16, which we're calling the Fellowship of the Gospel. And so we've done four, this is the fourth series in Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, we'll bring Romans to a close here uh, pretty soon with a little bit of whiplash. I was describing to somebody the other day, we've been kind of focusing in on some passages and then we're going to cover some big, gigantic passages rather quickly. And uh, if I were planning it now, I wouldn't have done it that way. But like I always say, when I'm done with a series is really when I'm ready to do a series. And uh, it just kind of works that way. So uh, if you are a note taker and you've got your sermon application guide, which you can download uh, online as well, you'll see there's a lot less information than I normally load a lot of information into that, but I didn't make my deadline. So I knew what my main points were, so I got those in. And I knew what the sermon was going to be about so I could create the questions, but I didn't have a lot of the in-between stuff. So if you you know, don't want to or can't keep up with the slides with the extra information, you can go to my blog and you can download a PDF of the slides, and you can even do that right now. Uh, it's at uh, henry-williams.net, henry-williams.net. And while you're there, subscribe to it, and you'll get it in your uh, email inbox. Uh, so henry-williams.net. So we believe around here that Understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. We also believe that really understanding what our role is in God's big story, which is what the Bible tells us, doesn't have to be a mystery. And this is one of those passages, like every week, that shows us and gives us answers to a lot of the questions that we have, or uh, we can understand what the Bible is saying. So I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 13. And for those of you who are here, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. And it's on page 1138, 1138 in those Bibles. So we're going to pray, as we always do, for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us. This prayer is based on Psalm 18, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you alone are God. You alone are our salvation, our strength, and our shield. There is none beside you. By your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us and guide us as we look to your word, open our eyes, soften our hearts, remind us of your promises, remind us of your presence within us. Lead us to be obedient. Lead us to be faithful to you and to your calling to our lives. Father, we uh, bring before you the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we lift up the Ukrainians to you. We ask for protection and strength and courage for for them, as well as for Ukrainian Christians, many whom are facing not only danger, but they're facing extra danger because they're taking in and sharing the gospel with neighbors that uh, don't know, that don't know you and need to hear about you. So I pray that you would empower them in their ministry right now. I pray for the people, for food, for basic medical needs, for those who are grieving already, for uh, loss of lives. Um, I just pray, Father, I think of all the people who are suffering that have not lost their lives but, but have been hurt uh, in so many different ways. And I pray for wisdom for world leaders as they continue to respond to Putin's evil purposes. We lift them up to you. Give them wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's watch or follow along in the scripture that says read on, uh, by one of our five ochres. Romans 13, 8 through 14. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's a, a pastor that tells a story about his early days in ministry and specifically, he was attending an ordination examination. And so when somebody's going to be ordained into ministry within a particular denomination or church, they, are, um, they go through an examination. Other pastors, some other people will be part of the ordaining council, and they'll ask them all kinds of questions. And this one proceeded just like all the others. It usually starts with questions about, how did you come to faith in Christ? So tell us your faith story, your testimony. Uh, it goes into, tell us why it is that you feel called into vocational ministry. And so they tell that story. And then the, the bulk of it has to do with their theology and their doctrine. What do they believe? And so there will be just the basic stuff that uh, is really important to believe. And then they're probably, depending on the de denomination, they'll be looking for some kind of match between some of the peculiar or particular aspects of that denomination. And so in this particular one, all the questions had been completed, and, uh, and it looked like they were just going to go on to the next stage of confirming him. And uh, one of the pastors, one of the examining pastors said, I have actually two more questions. And it made everybody a little bit nervous. Uh, he said he was there, and it made everybody a little bit nervous, but uh, he said, young man, I have two questions, and the first question is this, do you love people? So the pastor was telling the story thought, that's got to be the dumbest question I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, what is he supposed to say? No, I don't love people. I mean, is he going to say that? I don't love people, but I still want to be ordained. Of course, he's going to say that. And that's what he said. He said, yes, I love people. But then that question was actually a precursor to what he actually wanted to ask. And so he asked the second question. He said, how do you know you love people? How do you know you love people? So I want you to think about that. If someone were to ask you that question, you don't have to be a pastor <laughs> to be asked that question. Uh, how would you know that you love people? How would you answer that question? Just give it a moment here. Now, I, I've been giving you a lot of time, <laughs> but if that pastor had answered with, um, if his answer had to do with how he felt towards people, if your answer has to do with how you feel towards certain people, you would be a little bit, and he would be a little bit out of step with how the Bible speaks about love. I'm not saying that feelings are not important, uh, but the Bible, when it speaks about love, it usually speaks about what love does what it does. And so the feelings are important, but sometimes we're called to love when the feelings aren't there. Sometimes the feelings aren't there towards someone that's close to us, someone within our own church, someone in our small group. But Jesus even said to love our enemies. I don't think he meant work up some really good feelings about these people who are your enemies. So getting the answer right to both of these questions is really important for all of us because Jesus and the rest of the Bible makes clear that love for others is evidence of our faith. Jesus very specifically said that. They'll know you are my followers by your love. And they also make the point that when there is a lack of love in our life, it is possibly evidence that we don't belong to him. So it's, it's pretty central to everything. So Romans 13, 8 through 14 shows us what love does. But it does even more than that. 
it shows us why we love. What's the motivation to do the acts of love? And then it even goes uh, further than that. It shows us how we can love when it's difficult to love. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what love does so that we can determine whether or not we indeed love people. And then we're going to look at why love does what it does. In other words, what's the motivation for love? And then how do we do that? Because it doesn't come naturally uh, in a lot of situations. How do we become more loving? How do we grow, grow to become more loving people, which is the very definition of spiritual growth if you take Jesus seriously. So first of all, what love does. All right, so we're talking here about action. So in, in verse 8 of our passage, uh, Paul circles back around to the subject of love, which he introduced back in chapter 12. So chapters 12 through 16 are a distinct section and then within that, you've got a section within a section, really, that comes to an end at, this, at the end of this chapter, and then it picks up a new section in chapter 14. Uh, it's all connected, but it begins a distinctly new section. Here, he shows that everything he's been saying has just kind of been circling around some things, and he circles back around uh, to, to love. And then he introduces, but he introduces love in a very interesting way. He takes off on something that he says in the verse before it. And so... And that's important because it really helps us understand what is the point that he's actually trying to make. So look at verse 7 of chapter 13. He's been talking about our relationship to the government. We looked at this last week. And he closes off that section by saying, give to everyone what you owe them. The key words are give what you owe. Give what you owe, okay? If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor, and almost without losing a breath, without taking a breath, he says, let no debt remain outstanding. All right, so it's just, this starts this section, but he's picking up on this, I give to everyone what you owe, let no re debt remain outstanding, not because he's talking about debt, but because of what he's going to say next. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. Accept the continuing debt to love one one another. He's saying we owe each other love, but it's a debt that can't be paid off. It's a debt that can't be paid off. It's at the core of the core of our relationship with God. I mean, there's core things, and then there's things right within the core of the core. This is one of those things. And this is especially true if you just go to 1 Corinthians 13, another letter written by Paul. And it's oftentimes read in weddings, and it's a, a chapter about love. And uh, for one thing, as you read it, you go, yeah, love does. It does all these things. But it, just, it doesn't do just that. It says there are three main virtues, faith, hope, and love. And the Apostle Paul says, of the three, only love goes into eternity. Faith, we don't need at least that aspect of faith where you're needing to trust in something that you can't exactly see. We don't need hope because hope is something in the future and it's already come. But love continues into eternity. So Paul is reintroducing the subject of love. And then he's, as you saw, he's elevating it in importance by making a hugely important theological point. He says that loving others fulfills the law, and by the law, it means the Old Testament law, the law that God gave. So, uh, he makes this point twice. If you look at verse 8, the very end, the last phrase there, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And in verse 10, the last sentence, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, uh, if you've read the rest of Romans, if you've been with us as we've done these various series, you know that he talks a lot about the Old Testament law and its purpose and all of that throughout Romans. And here he's saying love actually fulfills the law. And verses 9 and 10 tell us uh, how it does this. It says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be 
are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law, which tells you a lot about the purpose of the law. It's, um, it, you know, just by, by saying love does no harm, and therefore it fulfills the law, it tells you something about the purpose of the law. So he takes these three commandments, four commandments, from the Ten Commandments, and then adds whatever other commands, these are summed up by one from Leviticus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. So think back to the question, the first one, do you love people? You might jokingly say, I don't, I don't love people at all. I've heard pastors say that, you know. I don't know why I'm in this. I hate people. They're joking when they say that. You know, it's probably they're going through a very hard time um, with maybe some hateful people. Uh, but do you love people? How important is this question? It's so important that Paul says when we love, we fulfill the entire Old Testament law. And then think back to the follow-up question. How do you know that you love people? Well, simply put, Paul tells us, you do no harm to others. And as we see in this passage, we're going to see it also is that we do what is good. And we do what is right. That's Paul's answer. So Paul is, in a sense, channeling the teaching of Jesus. In this passage, there's all kinds of touch points with the teaching of Jesus throughout chapters 12 and 13, but he's definitely doing that here where Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, but not just what Jesus says about the greatest commandment, what Jesus says in, the, um, in his final night with the disciples in John 15, 12, where he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, and then he describes what it is, what love does, to lay down one's life for one's friends, love does. Love does not harm others. Love does what is good. Love does what is right. Number two, why love does what it does. So here we get to the question of motivation uh, because Apostle Paul gets to that question of motivation. What's the motivation for loving? Okay, so we have a motivation that's already been given to us earlier in Romans, and it's still at play here. So you might remember when we started this series, Romans 12, 1 and 2, says, therefore, in light of God's mercies, all right, therefore, in, or in view of God's mercies, how the NIV says it. And so, what he's doing there is, with that therefore, he's actually, and we, show, we, we looked at how this is so, he's referring to everything that came before. And the use of the word mercy is a word that he uses over and over again in chapters 9 through 11, right before that. And it's always referring there to God's grace, the gospel, to the gospel of grace. So it's one way of talking about this whole gospel of grace, this unmerited favor, this, this favor that we've received from God, this acceptance that we've received from God that we can't earn. It's unmerited. We can't earn it. And so when he says, therefore, in view of this, now do this, that's still at play all the way through the end. So what is the motivation? The motivation is a response to grace. So love does what it does because of grace. We're, we're responding to grace. But now he offers another motivation in, verse, in chapter 13, and it's, it's a little obscure. It's not going to be easy to see, but I want you to kind of stick with me on this because I think you'll see it, you know, as we, as we spend a little bit of time. I think you'll see the logic that Paul has and that Jesus had as well in talking about why we should love, why we should do the right thing, why we shouldn't harm others. Uh, so it's in verse 11, it's introduced, and um, it says, and do this understanding the present time. That's what I mean. It's a little bit obscure. What does it mean? How is that a motivation that this refers back almost certainly to loving, fulfilling the law through love? How does this 
uh, how does the present time impact that? Well, it impacts it in a motivational in a motivational way. He's providing a motivation. So what is it about the present time and understanding it that offers a motivation for us to love? Uh, so we're going to have to step back a little bit and we're going to have to understand what he means about the present time. And basically, what he means by the present time, I'm going to show it to you in a moment, what he means by the present time is something that we talk about a lot around here in the story of God Chorus. We spend quite a bit of time developing it. It's one of the most important, if not the most, imp well, one of the most important doctrines of the New Testament uh, when it comes to figuring out what life is like now and how we live our lives now. And so um, it's what we call the already not yet of the kingdom, the already not yet of the kingdom. And so uh, it kind of looks like this, like this chart, uh, Jesus uh, comes, the expectation was that when the Messiah would come, he would bring the new age. And Jesus did bring the new age. But the other expectation was that the old age would be wiped out. The age of sin, death, all those kinds of things would be wiped out. But everyone was in for a surprise. It was part of the difficulty of understanding Jesus dying, rising, and then leaving. <laughs> but all the time he was teaching, he said, that's necessary to happen, and I will come back. And so, uh, it's, we live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so, in this time, the old age has not disappeared. Its end is in sight. It's been determined, and it, it's already been, its power has been weakened, and it's like on its deathbed, but it, it is powerful in its deathbed. And Jesus has come and he's brought the new age, talked about bringing the kingdom of God. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God is now with you. The rule of God is now with you. And so he has brought the kingdom of God, the new age, but it will not come in fullness until his second coming when we, have, we get a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, and the old age is no longer a part of that. So the important thing, one of the important things to recognize here is that we live in this in-between time, and it's a time of tension. We're living between ages. And so there's death, there's sin, there's, um, there's temptation, there's battles, there's wars, there's all the things that we experience in life. And at the same time, Jesus has brought the kingdom, has introduced the kingdom into our lives. It's a tension into our world. So we see it in the passage, I'll show you with a little uh, sentence flow here, understanding the present time. Now he describes it, the hour has already come, the kingdom has introduced, for you to wake up from your slumber. Wake up because it's, it's come. Um, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The salvation has come, but it's nearer. The night is nearly over, but it's not over and the day is almost here. And so you have this contrast between, these, these are terms in the scripture that describe the two different ages, all right? They describe the two different ages. So if we take some of these terms and put them on that chart, uh, it looks like this. The old age is nearly over. The new age has come. The new age is almost here. That's the present time. We're living within that tension, all right? So, I still haven't gotten to the motivation, but this is, this is the background to how this provides a motivation. Now, this is really important uh, doctrine, really important teaching of Scripture. We talk about it in our Story of God course, how important it is. When, when, when churches, pastors, and Christians get off the rails on this, bad things happen, and it frequently happens. What causes it is that nobody likes to live in tension. And so, instead of living within that tension, we try to resolve that tension. And what happens is, is that Christians resolve it on one end or the other. Okay, so some Christians resolve it. It's all here, and all we have to do is tap into it by just having enough faith, which leaves a lot of people wrecked when things don't go well. Okay, so it's, it's oftentimes caught in the word, captured in the word prosperity gospel. 
It's a prosperity. The, the idea is that we have it all right now. We just have to take hold of it. We just have enough faith. We just have to take hold of it. So we can have riches. We can have perfect health. Um, we, we can, our children, I mean, prosperity gospel goes to our raising of children. If we just do the right things, you know, and just pray enough, our kids are going to be fine. And it, it gets applied to all areas of life, emotional prosperity. We understand why is it that I'm having so many emotional problems, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, you know, and that kind of thing. Emotional prosperity. Uh, well, in our last series on sexuality, prosperity gospel that so many Christians bring to our sexuality and, and, and can't understand why some Christian would struggle with their basic orientation. And, and it's like, read the Bible. <laughs> we're all struggling. We're, we're, we're living in this tension. There's brokenness and we're broken, all right? Now, it can be solved, the tension can be solved in the other direction. And it's kind of like just forgetting everything here and everything is up here. We got to fight and this is a terrible place and, and, and it's up to us, all right? And, and God is relegated to someday he's going to do something. Uh, and there's variations on that, weaker variations of that, but it's kind of the same thing. So we don't believe that God has invaded this earth and can bring healing and can bring change. But God says no all the time to our prayers, all the time. Prayers that he's going to say yes to in heaven every single time. But he says no now because we live in that time of that tension. So Paul and the New Testament writers use a host of ways of talking about the old age still being present and how we're called to live in the values and the power of the new age, uh, which Jesus introduced into the world. And some of the terminology that's oftentimes used is a contrast between death, go, go back one second, between death and life, that's one of the contrasts. Living in the old age is bondage to sin, Living in the new age is freedom um, from sin. Uh, living in the old age is living under the law and being condemned by it. Living in the new age is living under God's grace and no longer being condemned by the laws that we haven't kept and will never keep perfectly. So the main images used in this passage are around night and day, darkness and, and, um, and, and light, which kind of the same kind of idea, but that's what runs through. Now we can look at how that. So understanding the present time, the time has already come to wake up. It's daytime. The, the day has broken. Wake up from your slumber, what you did at night. Because our salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. It's, it's peaking. It's, you can see now. It's not completely dark, but it's not, it's not fully daytime yet. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing. So what you can supply here grammatically is, and let us not behave indecently as in the nighttime. That's what's supplied there. That's the contrast. Not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, dissension and jealousy. All right, so night and day and all that. So what's the motivation in that? It's, it's, it runs through the whole New Testament. It runs through Jesus. It runs through Paul. It basically is saying, do you really, is there really a choice here? <laughs> Don't you want to live in the light? Don't you want to live? What, what do you want? Do you want darkness? Really in all that that leads to? The bondage it leads to? The death it drags you down into? the relationship breaking that it does, or do you want to live in the light and the joy that brings and the fulfillment that brings? So he's calling us, do you prefer to live, do you prefer light, life, and freedom or darkness, death, and bondage? Really, what do you prefer? Love belongs to life in the light and to freedom from the bondage of sin. If you want to live in the light, do loving things. Don't harm your neighbor. Do what's right in your life. So what is love? Um, it's more than a feeling. Going back to the first question, it's more than a feeling. It does no harm. It does what's right, and it's good. Why do we love? Because it belongs to life in the light and to freedom from the bondage to sin and that's good. I mean, as believers, we, 
we're drawn to Jesus who's the light. And so even though we're drawn to the darkness, we have a contrast. We have something. We have Jesus in the light. And it's like this question, live in the light, draw, be drawn to the light. Okay, so how do we do what love does? What's the means by which this happens? And so by means, I mean, what's the power? What's the, motive, what's, what's the power that's behind uh, what, we, what we do? So at first, if you look at this passage, it might look like what Paul says is, you've got to muscle through this. This is going to be a fight. Get your weapons ready and run into that fight. Have some discipline have some strength, and it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's, it's where all of us want to go if we're speaking like at a youth rally, <laughs> right? It's like, let's get everybody fired up, let's get them out here like living for God and, and putting forth that effort. And it's understandable why we go there. I mean, if we read this passage, free from Everything else that Paul has written up to this point, that's what it can sound like. Because look at this. Look at this passage. All the things to do. These are imperatives. These are commands. Let no debt. Debt to love. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. You shall love. Love does. Next slide. Put aside. Put on. Behave decently. Not in these ways. Clothe yourselves. Do not think about. All right, so that's, you can see why we might come to the conclusion that now that we're Christians, Paul has talked about all this grace and all this stuff earlier, and he says, now we're in, and now we're in the fight. Muscle up, push through, and you got to pull this thing off. It looks like it's dependent on our effort. And when we see it, this way, and we often do in our lives, uh, it's not surprising when certain things happen. Now, see if you might reflect at certain parts in your life, or maybe even right now in your life, certain times in your life right now, where you've been trying to muscle up, but you failed and failed over and over again, and you just right now are just defeated. You know, I'm defeated by my reaction to my kids. I'm defeated by my lust. I'm defeated by my tendency to run over people in order to get ahead and just go, go, go through just defeated. I just, I've tried to muscle up. I've tried to, tried to remember that talk and, and, and go into the day, you know, with, with, a, with a new fighting attitude. It's not surprising when we think this way that we might actually give up or and, and, and just quit trying. Uh, but sometimes we don't give up and just quit trying. We just give up on that aspect, and then we kind of excuse, you know, excuse it, and we try to do well on other aspects. So I, I know I don't do well on this, but I do well on this other stuff. And so we just, you know, kind of justify that. Or when we think this way, that this is our effort, uh, it's not surprising when we get good at some things and then minimize the others. Uh, so we may love the poor and serve out of our hearts, but our life is characterized by all the knots of that passage, not in carousing, not in sexual immorality. You know, we're, we're, we're doing really well in loving, serving people, but we're not doing that well at all, and we're not even trying, you know, on the drunkenness and all the, that, that other stuff, or the other way around. This is what you usually find in churches, by the way is we get really good at the knots, and we get really squeaky clean, but we're not good at the loves, you know, that, it, that at the center of our life, it needs to be characterized by love. The Pharisees were like that, and Jesus didn't condemn them um, for not being really squeaky clean, but for their lack of love, for their lack of mission in love, you know, that kind of a thing. We shouldn't be surprised in that effort uh, when we get good at all of it. Some people are really disciplined. 
Some people are just naturally, they're, they like everything in its place. It doesn't have anything to do with their Christianity. Their Christianity is just another thing that they like to have in its place. All right? So they can become really, really disciplined and really, really good at keeping all the rules, including the rule to love. And so they're out serving, and they're living squeaky clean lives, and then they look around everybody else, and they go, what a bunch of slobs. Why can't they be a real disciple like me? Why can't they take Christianity seriously? And then what happens? It's like the mother of all sins, the mother of all sins sets in, pride. So even in our success, there is a danger, a deep, deep danger. Like we have actually, be, we've become like God <laughs> by our effort. We've become like God. And uh, we can be proud of that. And, um, but this passage is not about muscling it out. I want to show you that. It's not about muscling out. This is not just for the super disciplined people in this world. So... What kind of effort is this calling? Because it is calling for effort, right? It is telling us to do a bunch of things. So what is it calling? So I want to talk about three things about that effort. One, there's effort involved, but it's the effort exerted by Christ that makes all the difference. Not our effort. The one that makes all the difference is the effort that Christ exerted. So that comes out really well in the next to the last sentence, verse 14, when it says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can't, I can't get into this uh, in detail, but all you need to do is if you've read the rest of Romans, if you've studied it before, if you've been part of this series, uh, what Paul is saying there is not the kind of the, the idea, which is not a bad idea, it has its place, but it's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. In other words, think about what Jesus would do if he was in your shoes. It's a good thing, it's a good thought. What would Jesus do if he was in my shoes? But that's, if that's all you've got, then it's a muscling it through, you know, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, put on what Christ has already done. That's what he's saying. He said, put on what Christ has already done. Paul has made this clear throughout the whole letter. <laughs> it's not, you can't forget everything he said in the first 11 chapters. We, we are made right with God. We receive the righteousness of God. There's other passages say that we become Christ's righteousness. Okay, righteousness is a rightness with God a rightness, a relational rightness with God. That's a major part of what that means. We receive Christ's righteousness. We're clothing ourselves with that. You are clothing, clothing yourself with Christ's work that has been done on your behalf. That's what you're clothing yourself with. Uh, you have sin no longer can just reign over your life like it once did. Still a temptation, you will still fall, but it, it no longer has control of you, dragging you down to death and eternal separation from God. It no longer has that power. Because you've been made right with God, your sins have been forgiven by and atoned for by what Christ has done through his death, through his resurrection. All your sins, past, present, and the future sins that you're going to commit have all been forgiven because you have Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 12, the last part of verse 12. Uh, so let us, the last sentence there of verse 12, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Again, that gives the impression, if you just kind of ignore everything else that's been said, you get the idea that this is like, again, this is muscle up, put on the armor, go out and fight. This is going to be your effort. And um, it's nice that you have these, these tools that God has given you, but it's not, it's really not what it's saying. Armor language like this 
is putting on God. That's what it means first and foremost. You're putting on you're putting on God, God's strength, God's care, the armor in the Old Testament. These are you know, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God, hyperlinks to all these Old Testament passages that are talking about God, his character, his strengths. And so when you're putting on the armor of God, you're putting on God. And we get to do that because we've been made right with him. It's not just these are tools that I go into the fight with. No. This is God, <laughs> and that's why I can fight, and that's why I can put forth effort. So um, we're called to put on God's armor, and it's armor that Christ wore in the battle for us. All right, so you know, I go back to Ephesians and read it with that in mind, and it takes on really a, a different kind of meaning. It, there's effort, but it's not the effort where it's my, you know, it's me muscling through. Uh, all the pieces of armor, all of them hyperlink back to the Old Testament. So we're going to do a series on this at some point. I've been dying to do a series on this. There's an excellent little book. It's a short book. You can, you can pick it up and read it pretty quickly. Uh, if I can get the next, uh, it's called The Whole Armor of God by Ian Duguid. That's how you pronounce that name. The Whole Armor of God, How Christ's Victory Strengthens Us for Spiritual Warfare. And it, is, it, it will do all those hyperlinks for you and show you how you are not in this, in this like monumental effort of you winning and the dangers of going that direction. So I recommend that to, to you if that's something you'd like to look at sooner than later. Okay, second thing about the effort. There's effort involved, but it's not a solo effort. There's a loving, supportive community that is in this fight together. Uh, so one of the things that comes out in this passage are the one another's, all right? Maybe if in story of God, we show you there's like 50-some, 60-some one another's in the New Testament. Encourage one another, love one another, exhort one another. That the Christian life is described as a one another life. And part of the reason is this we, because we can't do this thing on our own. We can't. And anybody who thinks they're pulling it off on their own isn't pulling it off. Uh, at the very least, because they're not doing the one another's, right? They're not living in community and doing all the things that Jesus says his people are supposed to be doing for each other, you know? So if you think you're doing it and you're not in a one another life, you're doing your own thing. You're not doing what God has called you to do within community. So there's all these one another's. And then there's, there's the communal aspect. In verse 12, it says, let us put aside let us behave. We're supporting. We're, we're in this together. And so this isn't going to be some kind of solo effort. We need each other in order to do this. And then finally, there's effort involved, but it's effort that trains us using practices God has given us by His grace for growing us in His grace. So it kind of touches in... in 13, Paul doesn't develop it here, but I want to I show you one place in the New Testament where he develops it, and Paul does develop it in other places, but he just kind of drops this idea there, uh, probably assuming they know there's more to it than this. But he just finishes after, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, like clothe yourselves, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, that's actually a very profound statement in and of itself that we could spend a lot of time talking about, uh, about kind of shifting our thinking, but he didn't tell us what to think about, um, unless maybe it's right there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we think about and what he's done for us. Uh, but let me give you an example of this from the life of Jesus. So uh, the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus being tempted, uh, right? And so for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he gets tempted at the end. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, he gets tempted. And Jesus, each time the devil tempts him, and all the temptations have to do with, hey, take this now. Don't go through that death thing. Okay, he knows what's coming. Don't go through all that. Take it now. Take it all. Just take the rule now of everything. And so as you read the temptations, you can see that's what it's going to. And Jesus counters the devil each time by quoting Scripture. So there is a training that happened before that moment. What was the training? 
It's a training that we all need. We need to know Scripture. And we need to be able to recall it. We need to bring it to bear on the situations that we live in, right? And so Jesus was trained in that. You go, well, Jesus, like he's God the Son, but he's also fully human. I, I would guess that if Jesus had to go to the bathroom, and he did, he also had to memorize things, that it didn't just come naturally, all right? That was part of his humanity. So Jesus has been trained through his life, and in this moment where he's being tempted, he can draw on that on that training. And it's by grace that we even have the Word of God. And He gives it to us so that we can train in it. It's only part of our training, but we can train in it in order to live in His grace. So, is the key to fighting temptation knowing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and quoting the Bible to the devil? No, it's not. It's not. Um, that's not what Jesus was doing. At his temptation, Jesus was thinking about, okay, what, what do we think about? If we're not going to think about satisfying our fleshly desires, what do, we, what do we think about? He's thinking about what's really true over the devil's lies. Okay, see, we can turn... Read the Bible, memorize it, quote it when we are facing temptation into like a magical thing, you know, or just another tool that we go into the fight. But that's not what Jesus is doing. And the best evidence of that is that the devil is quoting Scripture to him, all right? What, what he's actually doing is Jesus is immersed in what is true and good in the Scripture, through the Scripture. He's immersed in a trusting relationship with the one who is true and good. So there's other things he's trained in. It's not just the Scripture. He's immersed in a relationship with God. He has been equipped and trained not to just quote, yes, You've got to know the Bible, <laughs> okay, so you can think about that. But he's trained not to just quote verses, but to trust God who gave us those verses. So we need to immerse our lives in the Bible and know the Bible, but not simply to quote it, not simply to acquire more knowledge of the Bible, but to know and experience God who speaks through his Scripture. So every week we say, Understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. Neither does, we've normally said, understanding your purpose in life. Because it's not just about understanding the Bible, it's about your purpose. Uh, today I said, understanding your role in God's story. I'm part of a bigger story. Right? It's you know the Bible so that you understand your role, so you understand God, so you understand what he's up to, so that you fall in love with, with him and what he's doing. A couple of books, if you want to go a little deeper, we'll be... I think we're going to do a, probably a gospel series not too long. We'll, we'll get to the temptation of Jesus, this book by John Mark Comer. I've mentioned it before, Live No Lies. The subtitle is Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. Uh, this book is just really good. It's not a large book, but it's not an easy book to read. Uh, but it's by James K. Smith, You Are What You Love. The subtitle is The Spiritual Power of Habit. He's, he's the guy that says, we're not thinking things, we're not brains on a stick. If you think that you're just going to change because you change, he says, there's all kinds of things that we think <laughs> that we don't live because we haven't developed the habits around that way of thinking. We have to, our actions actually form our hearts as well. All right. Um, let's finish by reading the passage one more time. Follow along with me. Let no date debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, love, uh, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, 
understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's begin our response right now, a response to this passage by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We can put on Jesus Christ. Why? We can put on what he's done. What has he done? And the night he was betrayed, he told his disciples what was about to happen. He was about to die. And his death was on their behalf. He was dying the death that they deserved for their sins. But he was taking their sins on the cross. Our sins can be taken on the cross with him if we put our faith in him, the scripture tells us. Let's eat, remembering his body broken for us. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done so that we can have a living and active and real relationship with you that can be worked out in our everyday lives, that we live with you, we live in fellowship with you through what Jesus has done. At the same time, you empower us to live more for you as we live with you. Give us a vision for what this is, that, that, that vision of living in the light to see the darkness for what it really is, for where it'll take us. Help us to glory in the light and not glory in the darkness. Help us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.